Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedekes. And now get ready to think. Welcome to the Think Podcast from the Think Institute. This is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. Now, Christians talk a lot about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and rightly so. Those are very important doctrines, and they are vital for us to understand, especially if we're going to be sharing our faith with others. But what do we say? when someone asks us where Jesus is now and what he's doing. How do we answer our own questions about where Jesus is and what he's doing now? We know that he went back to heaven. We know that the Bible says that he sat down on the throne, but is he just waiting to come back? We know that he's interceding for us, but what does that really mean? Well, to everyone who could use some help answering these questions, my guest, Dr. Patrick Schreiner, is the perfect person to help us answer these questions. He is going to help us out. Dr. Schreiner is the Associate Professor. Check out this title. He is the Associate Professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at none other than Midwestern Seminary. And uh, if you know about Midwestern Seminary, you know about the Spurgeon Library, you're going to actually catch a glimpse, a rare glimpse into the Spurgeon Library in the background of uh, Dr. Schreiner's recording studio. It's very, very cool. But uh, Dr. Schreiner is the author of The Kingdom of God and the Glory of the Cross and Matthew, Disciple and Scribe, as well as the book I'm holding in my hands right now, if you're watching on video, called The Ascension of Christ, Recovering a Neglected Doctrine, put out by Lexham Press, who was kind enough to send this book over to me. And this is the book we are going to focus on today. So join the conversation, get your own questions answered live and in real time. Here we go. Dr. Patrick Schreiner, welcome to the Think Podcast. How are you, sir? Very good. Thanks, Joel, for having me. And as you can see behind me, there's the uh, Holy of Holies, the Spurgeon Library behind me. Yes. I've done other podcasts before, and I recognize I just had the soundboards behind us in our podcast studio. So why not see the library? Good to be here. That's great, man. That's great. So um, Midwestern has a recording studio there. Is uh, Is that right? Yeah. So they let a lot of us do podcasts here. There's a lot of podcasts coming out of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. So we have the For the Church podcast, Preaching Preachers, all these different ones. So we have this studio dedicated just for people using podcasts. And and so when I can do podcasts, I can jump in here really quick and use the studio. It's great. That is fantastic. You just recently switched over. You uh, transferred, uh, became employed by Midwestern. You were at Western previously. Yeah, I only go to schools with Western in the name. Midwestern, Western. Got it, got it. (laughs) Case Western Reserve would be on the the list of possibilities. That's good. Okay, well, um, so we're talking about a topic that, uh, as you say yourself, Patrick, in your book, the Bible hardly mentions the ascension. Christians today, when we talk about theology, when we talk about the gospel, we hardly mention the ascension. Why, just to sort of lay down the groundwork for where we're going today, why did you see it necessary to write a book on the ascension of Christ of all the doctrines you could possibly be talking about? Yeah, I I wrote it because at least in some of the circles I'm running around, it does seem to be a neglected piece that we don't speak about. So we speak about Christ's life, his death, his birth 
his resurrection, if we even get to the resurrection, but we don't talk about the ascension. And so you can see this, I note this at the end of the book, you can see this in our church calendar system. So if you go to a low church tradition, you usually celebrate Christmas, I'm hoping, <laughs> in church. Yeah. You you celebrate um, Good Friday. Many times we'll have Good Friday services in churches, and then you'll celebrate Easter. But that's kind of the climax, the celebration time. Jesus has rose from the grave, and amen, yes, totally affirm that. But um, we kind of stop there and think it's the end of the story. But according to the Bible, it's not the end of the story. There's still more that needs to happen a- after this. And so we get a, a narration of the event called the Ascension at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. And it's 40 days after the resurrection, which means it's a separate event than the resurrection. It's part of Christ's victory, but it's a different part of Christ's victory. And so I, when I started kind of thinking about the Ascension, I thought, well, what what if Christ didn't leave? What implications would that have if he didn't ascend to the heavens? And really what I came to is he's not enthroned as the king, as the Lord and Messiah, if he doesn't ascend to the right hand of the Father, which means we don't have Christianity unless he ascends. This is the vindication of the the Son from the Father, and it's through this event that we receive the Holy Spirit. And so, the ascension kind of can be this um, event in Christ's life that sits at the corner of the couch and is neglected. It, they don't, you don't talk about the ascension, but you talk about all these other things. But according to the whole Bible and especially the New Testament, it's one of the most important events that happened to Christ. And, and it's an event that I just really wanted to put our eyes on again. And so, it's again, I don't think it's Christ, that Christians deny the ascension. Um, but it's rather we just haven't articulated the importance of the ascension in our own thinking. It's an event that we don't really know what to do with, what to do with it, because, it, you know, the resurrection yeah. seems like it's really good news because Jesus is living forever. But why is the ascension good news if he left? I, I think we all want to be with Jesus bodily. And so it raises a few questions for us. Well, yeah, not to mention creates any number of apologetic um, difficulties. You know, uh, if Jesus is alive, where is he now? Why yeah. didn't he just stay? Isn't that awfully convenient that he he's no longer here? Um, and then, you know, you think as well about the Old Testament expectations of the Messiah sitting on the throne of David. Well, the throne of David, isn't that supposed to be in Jerusalem? If he's the Messiah, what, where is he now? And... Um, in in the um, the first few pages of your book, and I think you alluded to this, Patrick, but on page seven, you talk about how your purpose is basically to keep our theology from misalignment. Yeah. Um, you know, when I talk with my kids about the gospel and uh, trying to train them to be able to share the gospel and, you know, they'll be quick to say Jesus died for our sins. And then I like to say, okay, and that's it? Jesus died. Yeah, Jesus died. Okay, and and that's all, right? He just he died. He stayed dead, and they say no. He came back to life, <laughs> right? And right. and after after reading your book, what I realize is I need to go a step further, and say okay, and then what? Yeah, right. So how does the how does the stronger focus on the ascension keep us from misalignment? Are yeah. we in danger of of overbalancing or unbalancing? Yeah, and I think you're getting to the to the heart of it, really, in your spe- speech about the resurrection to your kids, uh, in terms of the victory of Christ. The, the only reason that the cross is good news is because Christ was raised from the dead and he ascended to heaven. And so we can't speak about the cross as good news unless we include the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. And so you think about the early Christians. I mean, this is why Paul says in 
first Corinthians, right? This is, this is foolishness to, uh, this is, this is shameful. It's an, a shameful event. A- and the disciples and the followers of Jesus were confused about the, the cross. And so the only reason the cross is good news is because the victory of Christ has conquered and he shows that the cross is actually good news by defeating death and then reigning at their hand. So the way I like to distinguish, and I get this from others, but the way I like to distinguish the resurrection from the ascension, because they're two closely related events in terms of Christ's victory and his exaltation. They're both combined as the same type of idea, but they're also distinct. So how are they distinct? They're distinct in this way. The resurrection affirms that Christ lives in that forever. The ascension affirms that Christ reigns in that forever. And I think that's a good, just kind of simple way of understanding the life of Christ is very good, but the reign of Christ also needs to be included in that. And the ascension is directly related to the reign of Christ. So we don't, I don't think we quite have the worldview anymore. I mean, maybe we do, maybe we do. Maybe thinking about like a November election coming up, that there is a sense in which someone is raised up and seated upon a throne. Now, we don't really have thrones in America, but at least in other countries, you have more of like a throne that they sit upon. And that's exactly what's happening in the ascension. But what's unique about Jesus Christ's ascension is that he's seated in the heavens. And that means he's enthroned above heaven and earth. He doesn't just occupy an earthly throne. He occupies a heavenly throne. So there were even stories of Greco-Roman rulers that they would ascend to thrones. And maybe even there were stories of after they died that their bodies would rise up to the heavens. And so I think he's, the New Testament authors, they're not making this up, but they're also using the worldview of the time to affirm that Jesus is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah, the one that everyone has been waiting for. So we cut that story short. If we just speak about the resurrection, say he's alive, great, but his work needs to be affirmed. Man, that's really good. And even your allusion to the presidency, you've, you've got to win in November, but then the, uh, the inauguration right. is not until that's January. Right. That's where you take the that's seat. Right. That's where you go move into that's the right. and I give, office. Can I give the example that's, of the Lion King too? Just to... Oh, do you, you have to. You so have if you to, watch yeah. the Lion King, either the live action one or what is it? Live action the, the, or the cartoon one. Or less, yeah. It's the same. It's the same thing. If you notice at the very end of Lion King, he comes back and he defeats Scar, right? So he has the massive battle. But there's this key scene at the end of the Lion King where the baboon, I think it's Rafiki, right? Rafiki points up and says, you must ascend Pride Rock. And then Simba does so and he roars. And that's kind of like the coronation of the king. So there's a sense in which that actually maps really well upon the biblical story because on the cross, Christ defeated the powers of darkness. That's what Colossians says. He put them to shame. He conquered them, so forth and so on. So there is a victory there in the cross, but that victory is not complete until he ascends Pride Rock and he goes up there and he roars. And I love that scene because they get that there is this symbolic meaning to him taking his seat, to ascending that rock, to sitting upon the throne, putting the crown upon his head. I also like to give the example of um, like Frozen, right? The coronation day. Okay. The, co- the coronation day is the same type of thing. Like uh, when it's, yeah. I think it's Elsa who's who's given, she becomes queen after her parents die. That's That's ascension day in the same way. And so as we think about the ascension, we want to think about the crowning of Christ the King. He's authorized. He's yeah. his work is endorsed. It's confirmed by the Father. Do you have kids, Patrick? 
I do. I have four kids. That's why I use only. <laughs> that's, that's why. Good. That's why I only use kids' movies examples now because that's all we're watching. That's as you're as you're giving these examples, I'm like, I'm like you got to talk about ranking because my kids. I've got four kids too. I'm like, my kids, my kids are gonna want to hear this. This is gonna make sense to them. I only so, talk about Disney movies now. They're uh, they actually are giving me a little bit of cut of some of their um <laughs> the good, their makings. Good, good, yeah, yeah. They got at least send you a free download or something. That's right. That's right. Yeah. No, that that's really good. So, so we we need to understand the ascension in order to keep our theology or our understanding of the gospel from getting unbalanced, imbalanced. Now, um, can we just sort of let let's start with the basics here? And this is something that has fascinated me at least since I was in seminary. Um, probably that's the first time I really started to to consider this question. Mm-hmm. And I remember I can remember back to uh, 2011, I was in a biblical theology class with D.A. Carson. He was our professor. Yeah. And uh, I remember thinking, okay, so Jesus ascended, right? Okay, yeah. so that, that he's in heaven. But Jesus is a man. Yeah. That means he has a physical body. Right. Now, Jesus ascended to heaven, which is a spiritual place. Can you just sort of just lay down the basic theology for us here, Patrick? Where is Jesus? Yeah, <laughs> I'll give you the latitude and longitude in just a minute. Please, I'll, if you could. I'll just Is type it into the chat. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so um, the two things you mentioned, I think, are actually really important. It's good that you had D.A. Carson because he led you in the right way. Number one, we want to affirm that Jesus is still embodied. So he still has a body. As one author said, the dust of earth resides on the throne room of heaven. I love that line because you think about there's a throne room of heaven and the dust of earth is up there because Jesus was walking around on this earth and he got dust on him and it's up there now with him. So we want to just begin by affirming Jesus is embodied. He hasn't lost his body. In the last chapter of my book, I actually go towards combining the ascension with other doctrines and say this actually lifts up our our understanding of the uh, incarnation, because the incarnation is not reversed after Christ dies. It's actually affirmed in the resurrection. And then it's doubly affirmed in the ascension as Christ with his new body goes up to the heavens. So that's yeah. affirming the goodness of our bodies, the goodness of the physical, the goodness of what God has given us. So number one, just start there. Number two, recognize that the New Testament doesn't give us like Okay, so he went up, up, and up, which means he's in some outer galaxy, which means he needed some sort of spacesuit, which means, like, it's not like if you just keep going up further and further and further, you're going to find the heavens. So I I think the idea of the heavens is, uh, this is the way I like to state it. I don't know if this is right, because this is not explained in the scriptures, but the, the heavens is both a place and it goes beyond our understanding of what a place is. And so when he ascends to the right hand of the Father, that's a real ascension, but it's also symbolic. It's historical and symbolic of what kings would do at that time. And so I don't think we can travel and find where the heavens are, but at the same time, I tend to think there is a place called the heavens and we are going to be there in our, this is the intermediate state. Now we're getting into eschatology in our disembodied state while we wait for the new heavens and new earth to be ultimately finished. So it is a place and it's uh, maybe, maybe it's more of a spiritual place, but it can't be a purely spiritual place because Christ has a body there. So how do you combine those two things? Well, I think if we hold those things in tension, we're getting the 
the closest that we can to understand what the heavens is. I want to lean more on the symbolic side of it, not to deny the reality of it, but just to say that as he ascends and goes to the heavens, there's a sense in which that is the control room of the universe. That is that okay. is the father saying, you now rule and reign over all things. And you have Psalm 110.1, until I put mm-hmm. all enemies under your foot or under your feet. And so uh, we, we don't know where it is, but we know that it's, it means something. And we yeah. know that it means he's not an earthly king. He's a heavenly king and he's going to manifest his kingship upon the earth in that final day when he comes back to judge the living and the dead. So I'm happy for you to pitch back on me on that. Uh, This is a question that I get consistently, and I don't know if my answer is satisfying, but I'd love to talk about it more. Well, you know, you can you can tell I had something to say because I was doing one of these, putting my hand up. You know, that's a sign. That's a that's a tell. <laughs> I At didn't know your sign yet. That's good. That's it. It's I put my hand by my mouth like, <laughs> like no no no, hold it back, hold it back, set a case. Okay. So so, all right. So so Jesus is so heaven is the control room of the of the universe. Now, um, I just said, a, the Bible doesn't say that, but I'm, I'm no, putting all the pieces together. But if you think of a throne room functioning yep. in a kingdom, it's where the edicts go forth from. That's right. It's it's, it's where uh, when it's we pray. Revelation. Yeah, right. The throne room where all the yes. judgments, the seals, the yes. trumpets, bowls come from. That's We're getting a picture of what's happening in the throne room of heaven in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Yes. And and um, you you definitely get the sense that it is it's, it's really... Um, it's the center of everything. It's the yes. most important place. Yes. It's it's hard to say in the cosmos because it's not sort of exactly in the cosmos, which means world. But it's it's uh, it's definitely the most important location there is. Is the center of everything. It's where Jesus is enthroned. And you know, reading Revelation, it's 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 hard. It, it's you almost get this sense that where Jesus is now, myth and symbol almost merge with physical and, and spiritual reality. Yeah. Yep. So it's like, okay, there's a sea of glass in front of the throne and right. an emerald rainbow. Okay, it, is that an actual, if I were to, first of all, if I could physically go there, would I see a sea of glass or does right. that symbolize something? Is that, or or is it both? Is it is it sort of the archetype of all archetypes that it's both real and archetypical and symbolic in and of itself? Yeah. And, you, you know, you get this sense that it's like, man, it, it our categories of, reality might not even apply up there is that i i think there's something to that and i think some of the closest that we can get is when we think about what evidence is given to us in terms of christ's resurrected body because that's what he brought with him to the heaven so what what happens with that body well it's very real and physical because he eats fish and thomas touches his scars so let's start there but it's also strangely like um, he appears in the middle of a room when the door's locked, he disappears on the Emmaus road. He appears these disciples on the Emmaus road and they can't recognize him. And then suddenly they can recognize him. So I I think you're getting to the reality of it's both physical and real and spiritual and beyond what we can comprehend. Like how can the physical corporeal appear in the middle of a room without opening a door? Well, that I think that's what Paul's speaking of in 1 Corinthians 15 with this spiritual body, which doesn't mean the disembodied body, but the new body from heaven, which is different than our old body. So again, for some reason, the New Testament is just not interested in giving us 
a lot more details on that. They're, they're interested in giving us a hope, a true hope that he is reigning and he's coming back to manifest that reign here on the earth. And so it, it, we have some sense of what's going on, but they don't, they don't give us the details, which is why we're talking about it. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's exactly right. I, I, I like that. Um, you know, at one point you talk about the temple. Now, Several, several. Aside from just being uh, a helpful theological tool, Patrick, there were a few things, a few statements that you make that really fascinated me. Like, really, like I hadn't ever, ever considered them before. Now, um, you talk about, for example, you talk about the the temple symbolizing that there were th these three, or especially the tabernacle, the three sections of the the tabernacle. You had sort of the outer court, you had the the holy place, and then you had the most holy place. Now, you, if I remember, you talk about those three parts of the temple symbolizing really the three heavens. Is that is that right? And so the priest going into, am I, or, or is that an insight that I had as I read your book? Um, and, and a point you weren't exp expressly making. I want to see if I can find it. Uh, okay, so it's on page 54. I'm going to, I'm going to, mm -hmm pull it up here. You Let me see if I can get an exact quote. You say, the division of the spaces represented the cosmos. Priests entered into the highest heavens as they entered the Holy of Holies mm -hmm. to meet with God and intercede for the people. Yeah. Cherubim on the curtains indicated that they symbolically entered the heavens. Um, is, it, is it your position? Is it your position that the three divisions of the temple or the tabernacle symbolize the three heavens. So like when Paul talks about traveling to the third heaven, that's sort of, you know, that's where Jesus is now. He's in the holiest place, the, the, <laughs> the, the sanctum sanctorum. Yeah. Um, is that your position or am I reading too much into that? No, no, I, I lean that way. I mean, I don't take a really strong position on this because I don't think it's entirely clear, but uh, I would want to begin with saying the temple is a picture of the heavens and the earth combined, the temple and tabernacle, which is based off the work of G.K. Beale and so forth and so on. So okay. you have this image of the heavens and earth. And so the, the temple divisions are actually showing you what heaven is truly like and heaven and earth combined is truly like. So then that would make sense as you walk symbolically into the heavens, that there would also be a division there, which seems to be represented, as you said, in the Pauline literature when he said, I got to the third heaven. You know what I mean? And... I had a vision. I know a man who saw this. And then in Second Temple Jewish literature, I think it's first or second Enoch, they actually speak about six levels of heaven so that there's all these different levels of heaven. Now, what do we do with all that? Well, I would just affirm that it seems to be the Jewish worldview that there all are different levels of heaven. Now, this isn't like purgatory or something like that, right. but rather that there's almost like circles of representation to where beings can be, that the the Yahweh, the God of all gods, resides in the holiest, the highest place. And then there are spiritual beings that maybe fan out from there that reside in different levels of heaven, just like as humans must pass through levels to reach the presence of God here upon the earth. So in that way, I think there's actually, this is the implication for the ascension. I think in that way, as Christ actually ascended, he was showing that he was defeating the spiritual powers of darkness because it doesn't say this explicitly, but in their worldview, he probably then passed through each level of heaven to get to the highest of heavens, the holy of holies, showing I have conquered, 
I have one. And that's what I think Ephesians 4 is getting at when it talks about the ascent and the descent of Christ, that he has conquered at every level, which is both the lower level of the regions of the earth, Sheol, on the earth, and then in the heavens and all the heavens. So even when uh, Matthew speaks about the kingdom of heaven, it's always in the plural. It's the kingdom of heavens, plural. Actually, that Greek word right. is almost always in the plural, which I think right. is speaking to some sort of division in the heavens. Now, I don't want to get too deep into that because, again, the New Testament isn't uh, that interested in giving us a theology. But I think that's the worldview that they're working with. So that's the one I'm just trying to adopt, although it sounds fanciful and mythical and I, all these different things. Right. I just think that's what they're operating with. And so I want to follow them and say, based on that worldview, how should we understand what happened at the Ascension? No, it, it's really good. And we, I, I'm, I'm with you 100% that it does seem fanciful. It does seem, you know, there, there is, we've got to stick with what's written, not to go beyond what's written, but I, it's, uh, there's a lot of um, background information that you can find out there about the worldview of second temple Judaism in the first century. Um, I'm currently, uh, I just um, listened on audio to first Enoch. I finally finished it. Nice. And yeah. So it's funny. You, you mentioned and the rest of the world are listening to audiobooks of first Enoch. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> well, I'll I don't you, think I've ever heard anyone say I just finished first Enoch on audiobook. On audiobook, sure. Well, you're, uh, you're an amazing man. <laughs> uh, it's it's an amazing book, but you know, I figured since you mentioned it, and I'm also um, yes. here's another here's another yes. Lexham Press book, uh, Demons. Demon. I'm holding it up. If you're listening on audio, I'm holding it up. It's by Michael Heiser, Demons. Um, I'm going to have Dr. Heiser on my um, on the podcast in a few weeks. Yep. And um, so part part of what you're saying in terms of the worldview of Second Temple Judaism, I'm hearing echoes of Michael Heiser there. That's right. He's and, getting into that spiritual side, which we are so focused on the physical right. that we forget about that kind of spiritual side of it. But man, if you begin to pay attention to the powers in the Bible, as Heiser is pointing us to, it is all over the place. It, it is. And, and he's, got demon, he's got the book Demons and Angels and the Unseen Realm, and he's doing really good work on kind of just opening our eyes to that Unseen Realm. Yeah. And the Ascension is the victory of Christ over those powers, showing that he's been enthroned. I mean, there's a sense in which... Again, I'm not getting into details, but I think there's a sense in which the Satan, the, the the devil, is the one who wanted to occupy that throne, but it's only the Son of Man who gets Ooh. to occupy it, and that he actually had to descend because he wanted to ascend. Right. And now he's trying to get all the kings of the earth to ascend in the same ways, but only the King of Heaven will do this. So there, there's a whole like spiritual power side to this that we mm -hmm. definitely need to investigate more. Yeah, you 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 do bring that up in let's see uh I think the kingship it, chapter yeah ascension of the king that's right and yeah. and i definitely want to talk about how the ascension um both continues and fulfills the different roles of christ a prophet priest and king but yeah. yeah you you talk about that passage from isaiah 14 how you are fallen from heaven o day star loose which is where we get lucifer from right um so i think i believe so uh son of dawn how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the the nations low, and so so that's that's such an interesting idea that the devil, the Satan, wanted yeah. to ascend to the throne, and yeah. and so Christ's passing through first descending to Sheol to the realm yeah. of the dead, and then passing through all yeah. the layers, all um, whether there are three heavens or seven. Uh, one of our regular <laughs> uh, listeners, uh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna put this. 
on the screen here. So Donna Flentke, who's one of our regular listeners. Yes, that, that's what at least Enoch says. There's seven heavens. Seven heavens, right. And yes. so, so okay, so, so she says, he's most high, talking about Jesus. And now she says, Joel, you're starting to get into my world of study. Okay, well. <laughs> that's uh, good. Yeah, well, well, in Isaiah, can I interrupt for a minute? Please, Isaiah of course. 14, no, no, this 13 your, says, speaking of uh, the day star, oh, son of dawn, which is, there's some debate in, in Old Testament scholarship. What, is that referring to the king of Babylon or is that referring to Satan? I think that's a false dichotomy there. Yeah. And so I think it's referring to both of them. But look, listen what he says in Isaiah 14, 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That is a king of the earth and I think the kind of opposer, the adversary to God saying, I will ascend and no, it's only the Son of Man that ascends. That's Daniel mm -hmm. 7. And yeah. so this is, this, is the spirit, this is the point of spiritual warfare where Christ conquers and wins. No, he's like, yeah. I ascend. No, this, this, that's that's very good. And Donna followed up with a couple of more comments here. We typically address comments at the end, but I think they're kind of relevant. Uh, same with Babel in terms of people trying to get yes. up to heaven. And, yes. and, and so the ascension is God's way of saying, there's only one who gets to, uh, to ascend to this yeah. throne. And, and what I love about Daniel 7 is that it's the truly human one. The 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 human the son of man just means the one born of of man, right? Correct. Yes, the, that's right. The human one. So it's not the it's not the spiritual powers. It's not the beasts of the earth. It's not the kingdoms of the earth. It's not the one who's really rich. It's not the one who has all these followers. It's not the one with the large army. It's Amen. the one who's acted in the most truly human way. And and how did Christ act? That's where you go to the gospels, and you said he has compassion. He has love. He has justice. He calls out people for their sin, but he also welcomes them into his kingdom. And the father looks at him and says, you are the true king of the earth. Yeah. And therefore you may ascend to the heavens, which is, Ooh. it's a, such a beautiful doctrine, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's right. Sit, sit at my right hand. Oh man. Yeah, that's good. So, so I, that's probably a pretty good segue, Patrick. Can we talk about the threefold role of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And now you flesh this out in great detail. I, I don't, I, you know, yeah. maybe if you could give us sort of the, the overview as to how each of those roles are perpetuated and fulfilled mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. Jesus in his ascension. Yeah. So I, I like to start this conversation by just saying we want to think about not only what Christ has done and what he will do. What has he done for us? He came, he lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died, and he will come and reign again upon the earth. I think that's where we usually like to think. But we also need to think about what is Christ doing now? We don't believe in a deistic Jesus Christ who's sitting right. at the right hand of the Father, just kind of twiddling his thumbs playing with paper airplanes up in the highest heavens, being like, all right, when are we going to end this thing? Like, when is it over? No, he's working and he's actually working hard in the heavens. So the question then becomes, well, what is he doing now? Like, what what do you do in the, <laughs> what do you do in the heavens? Like, what's the job there? Well, based on, again, the worldview then to sit at the right hand of the father was to rule and to reign. But how does he rule and reign? Well, according to the whole kind of witness of the scriptures, he was a prophet, priest, and king upon the earth. So I think that one of the best ways, at least the way I thought of what he's continuing to do, is that he doesn't lose those roles at the ascension. They actually kick into a higher gear at the ascension. That's why Jesus can say, it's yeah. better if I go away. How in the world is it better? 
How in the world is it better if Jesus in his body leaves? Well, because he's acting even as the better prophet now, the better priest now, and the better king now. So in terms of the prophetic lens, what is he doing? Well, he's building his church. So what would a prophet do? A prophet would proclaim the word of God. A prophet would perform signs and wonders. And a prophet would uh, have the spirit. Okay. And in the same way, Jesus actually gives those things to us, his church, his body. He's the head. We are the body. He gives us his spirit, the Pentecost, right? Which yep. empowers what? Our lips and our hands <laughs> to right. do the works of Jesus. And this is why Jesus says, you will, or John says in the gospel, you will do even greater works than Jesus. Well, in what sense? Well, we now have the spirit of Jesus. We can proclaim that gospel and we can do the works of Jesus here upon the earth. And what does that do? Well, it builds up the church. It actually literally builds the church according to Ephesians 4. As Christ ascended, he gave gifts to his church, which are prophets, uh, teach prophets, what are all, apostles, prophets. Yeah. Evangelists, pastor, eva teachers. Eva yes, exactly. Yeah. And so he's continuing to equip his church to build that embassy of the kingdom here upon the earth. So it's not that his prophetic role has ceased. He's not still... He's, he hasn't ceased acting as the prophet. He continues to act as the prophet right. in the heavens. So do you want to pitch back on there? Or you want me to go to priest? No, no, no. That, that's good because um, priest is going to be a controversial one. Uh, simply because, in fact, we're getting comments about this right now on, on YouTube. The, the reason why it's going to be controversial is because there was a, a priestly system that was set up. There yeah. was a Levitical priest, priesthood that was very much in place when Jesus was on earth. Yes. And so... So you're going to have to help us out here. How was Jesus, if you're going to say that the roles that Jesus played yeah. are, are fulfilled, amplified, uh, 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 continued in the ascension, well, how did he have the role of priest if he wasn't a Levite? Yeah, yeah. So that's actually a debated piece of New Testament theology right now. So Hebrew says he couldn't be the same type of priest right. from the line, but he's of a different line of priesthood, which is of Melchizedek. So that's a different line of priesthood, which is a forever priest. So mm -hmm. Nick Perrin has a book called Jesus the Priest, if you want to check it out, which was really helpful for me in thinking about Christ as a priest upon the earth. I think typically even my own mind, I thought of Christ. Yeah, he's a prophet. He affirmed he was a prophet. People said he was a prophet upon the earth. And it's pretty clear he's the king. He's anointed. He's declared the king. So you have this kind of kingship and prophetic lens. But I also think he's a priest because you've got these actions of Jesus. He's the one who purifies his people. Yeshua, Jesus, right, is the one who will save his people from his sins. Matthew 1, 21 through 23. From their sins. Yes. Yeah, from their yeah. sins. That, that yes. is a very priestly act to save them from their sins. Now that's pitching to the cross. I understand. But what does he also do? He also teaches them how to pray. He teaches them how to approach the Father, right? That's a priestly act too in terms of the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer. Um, he also goes into the temple and he doesn't perform a sacrifice, but he cleanses the temple. And so he's kind of a subversive priest in that sense because they expect him to come in and, and perform what he's supposed to according to the worldview of, of first century Judaism. But no, he, he actually cleanses the temple or judges the temple. Even the language of the kingdom of God arriving, arriving is a priestly term. That means it comes near. And this is the idea that the presence of God comes near in Jesus Christ himself. Hmm. So as he calls out to God as our father who art in heaven, mm -hmm. he's acting as the priest. As he's healing people, who does he heal? Those who have leprosy, right? 
those yeah. who, who have things that are keeping them from entering the temple or the people of God in the same way. I think all of these things are actually pointing to him as a priest on the earth, but he's from a different line of priesthood. He's from the line of Melchizedek, which is a different line, which we could get a little bit into Melchizedek, but he doesn't have any genealogy, which means he's a forever priest. And so finally, yeah. the culmination of his priestly work obviously comes as he dies on the cross. He suddenly becomes not only the priest, but the lamb. But right. I think according to Hebrews, he's not only the priest, he's the temple, he's the lamb, he's the curtain, he's the he's the everything. He's the bread, yeah. he's the light. I mean, this is, it seems like everything in the temple ends up being about Jesus. So um, the argument of Hebrews is that Jesus is now a better priest in the heavens. Now, why is he a better priest in the heavens? Well, because he has a better body. He serves in a better tent. Yep. He has a heavenly intercession rather than an earthly intercession. He doesn't have to do this daily. He doesn't have to um, confess his own sins because he's sinless. And so he intercedes and he gives us a better blessing. So he's a yeah. better priest in that sense. Now, I know that jump from uh, on the earth, he was a priest and now a priest in heaven. Most people will affirm based on Hebrews. Yeah, he's a priest in heaven. It's the earthly priest that some people are like, ah, I'm not sh as sure about. And I understand that. I get it. I do think there's intimations of him being a priest. And I I'll let you pitch in here. But one of the reasons I think that is because in the garden, Adam and Eve are created as prophet, priests, and kings. Hmm. And I think actually the result of sin is that um, those roles were kind of split through Israel's history, although hmm. sometimes they came back together, and then ultimately they come back together in Jesus Christ. Yeah, it, you know, it's very interesting. I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, Moses told the Israelites to be watching for a prophet who would be like him. Yes. And you think about Moses. Uh, Moses was a Levite yes. who who uh, spoke face to face with God. He yes. he um, he interceded for the people before God. He he, he went a, up on the mountain. Yes. Like what the priests do, go in the presence of God and yes. the cloud comes down like he in. I mean, can we say this right? Moses is in some, not he's the first Levitical priest. Yeah. Is he is he? Though? Be, <laughs> I think be, he is. <laughs> OK. OK. Because because. Aaron clearly was, but Aaron, Aaron, Aaron was, yep. was of course a Levitical priest, but, but Moses was, um, well, let me ask you this. Did, did Moses offer sacrifices? He uh, instituted he did, them. He offered, well, he interceded for yes. the people. And I did, I don't remember if it says if he offered sacrifices at that point, but he definitely interceded for the people multiple times when they had sinned. Oh and yeah. Therefore God did not judge them. Yes. And so, well, yeah, I mean, it depends how you parse this out. You could say, this is what I would say, I think was clear that Moses or the Levitical system is built off Moses's actions. That's what I mean okay. by he's the first priest. That okay. what Aaron does is actually mirroring Moses going up on Mount Sinai and the cloud coming down and meeting in with the presence of God. Yeah. And so, although we only like to think about Moses as a priest, again, I think we need to think of, or I mean, sorry, as a prophet, I said right. that wrong. No, no, no. <laughs> only you're right, you're as right. a prophet. I'm tracking. He should, he should be thought of as a priest. And actually, again, in second, I think it's Philo who labels him as a king as well. I think Moses yes. is one of these fig figures yes. who's this prophet, priest, and king kind of totally. 
he's just one of those figures that combines all of those roles. I think David kind of does the same thing too. Yeah. David is prophetic in some ways. He actually performs priestly actions and he's not from Levi. So mm. you get, he's the Davidic one and yeah. he's taking the bread from the, the show bread <laughs> for yes. Samuel. Yeah. And he's doing things that you're like, wait a second, this maybe shouldn't be done, but God seems to approve of it. And he's yeah. the king. But when Solomon does that, it's like, no, you can't do that. And Saul, like, <laughs> right. So either there, I need someday. I'd love to do a biblical theology on kind of the prophet, priest, and king because I think there's more going on here that, than people realize. Yeah, and so uh, just a just a quick side note, Patrick, if you'll allow me. So prophet, priest, and king. Um, uh, obviously, there's a there's a uh, there's a di- a dichotomy or a distinction between the roles without yeah. there being a hard division yeah. in those roles. They're they're united. Yes. Go ahead, so I, go ahead. I like to think of it as like a almost a Venn diagram that you have a circle here, circle here, circle there. Yeah. And all of them overlap a little bit, but they're yes. also distinct in their own ways. Yeah. And in Christ, they're all unified. Yes. Um, I noticed a lot of triads as I was reading your book. A lot, a lot of triads. I just want <laughs> to- John Frame. I was going to say, I mean, I'm like, this guy's been reading Frame, man. I don't He's, know if I meant to do that. I guess it just happened. Once, well, it ha- once you- once you see the triads, so anyone who's listening, I'm so, I'm so into the triune God that it just comes out in my just, writing. It wasn't intentional. <laughs> that's man. That's when you know you're really sanctified. There I still have go. to. I still have to think about it consciously. I mean, my my um my writings, my sermons, and things like that. When I do teaching, it's always boom, 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 three, and they always correspond to. It's a good number. It, it's. I mean, you mean I could the best. you know the one office that you could put in here that many people do prophet priest king and sage as well the wisdom oh. teacher that's the okay. one I didn't do but some some people like to throw that one there but then you don't have the the threefold office so, you know well, I, I toss right. that one out but even even wisdom I would put that in a different triad of wisdom knowledge and understanding yeah that's so, true yep so yep. you know you can you can and then we could say prophet priest and king wisdom knowledge and understanding and then we'd have to come up with a third a third triad, triad. there you go now we're getting nuts Fr- frame would love us he would he yeah maybe he'll watch this I don't know um, <laughs> so the um, so the role of prophet the role of priest and uh, the role of king, I, I think um, maybe if you could touch on that, you mentioned already how the throne room of heaven is the control center of the um, of the, the cosmos. Could you talk about how is Jesus reigning as king? How is he not an absentee landlord? How is he, how is he not a, a deistic mm. God r- ruling in the, the heavens? How is he reigning right now? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. I mean, just because he's absent physically now doesn't mean he's not reigning over the earth now. Now, there we do need to affirm there's an interim time. He hasn't manifested that reign completely on the earth, but he has been installed as the king. So there's this interim time where we're waiting for him to be installed on the earth, but he is installed in the heavens, which is, I like to think of it this, heaven is true reality, right? And so this is what is yeah. really real, yeah. but now he's given us his spirit to go out and actually do the work. He's giving the interim time for people to repent. That's what's very clear from the New Testament. This is Second Peter. God is patient with you so that you might repent and continue to do good works. So he's giving people time to recognize Jesus's kingship and to Hebrews repent, four too. That's right. And to repent yeah. of their sins and turn to Him. And as as that time comes to include to a close, He will then judge those who have not. So just because He's not 
reigning here on the earth doesn't mean he's not reigning. It actually, he's reigning in a better sense from the heavens, which is a greater reign. I think that's kind of the point of the ascension. So we never want to lessen his reign. We actually want to amplify his reign. But he he is not, I mean, his. Uh, this is Psalm 1101. All his enemies have not put under been put under his feet. So there yeah. isn't that climactic act. So actually, when I was writing this book, one thing that occurred to me is that I, I wanted to think of the ascension as the climax of the work of Christ, because it's like, okay, his life, his death, his resurrection, and now the climax, he's installed as the king. But there's a sense in which the climax is still to come as well. And that's when he manifests that reign here upon the earth. So, uh, and, and this is getting into the details of the physicality, but um, when you have the prophecies in Psalm 2 of the king being installed on Zion, his holy hill, Many times we just think of that in an earthly sense, but there's also a heavenly sense of that. That I think, and I need to tease this out more. I'd love to hear what you think about it. But I think the the, the throne of Israel upon the earth was the lesser reality to the throne in heaven, which it truly represents. Let's go. Just like the temple on the earth was the lesser reality of the temple in the heavens. And so there's a sense in which the earth is just a mirror and actually a corrupt mirror of true reality in the heavens. So when we begin speaking about, well, is he seated on the throne of David? Well, the ultimate throne of David is in the heavens because yes. that's what it represented. Yes. Ooh, so yes, good. he he is seated on the throne of David and he is in the heavens and those two things are combined. But then I don't want to remove the physicality of that and say, well, he's going to come back and manifest that reign here on the earth. He's not just going to stay up there. And that's very clear from Acts 1 where the angels come down and say, hey, you saw him go up. He's going to come down in the same way and you're going to see him come back. Yeah, so It's yeah. very clear those two events are, are linked in their minds. Absolutely. No, that that's um, that's an important point. And, uh, and so, so just like, I mean, uh, the promise to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, yeah. land, offspring, yes. and blessing. Um, Hebrews 11 makes it clear that Abraham, or that uh, Abraham was looking forward to the city that had foundations. Yeah. He he understood even Abraham, even in in at that period in um, holy history, he he didn't have it all. He died without having received what was promised. Right. But he looked forward to a greater fulfillment. And and now we understand. Wow. I mean, we're not even talking just about the boundaries of Israel. We're actually talking about the cosmos, yeah. the, the hev- you know heavens and earth. That's and, right. And different and, Christians disagree about that, but I, yes, I think it's, yes. it's, it's, it's it, the promise is fulfilled in, in which way? Well, I, I tend to agree. I think it's all of heaven and earth are given to him. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Paul in Romans 4 changes um, land to cosmos mm. <laughs> with the promise to Abraham. I don't remember exactly what verse, but he says, it's not only the land anymore, it's the cosmos. And you're exactly right. right. Abraham, this is my view as well, he looked forward to a time where this promise would come to fruition, but he he realized and he didn't realize that it would be greater than he ever imagined. Yeah, yeah, that, yes, that's right, that's right. I mean, uh, you know, so that Jesus could say to the the Pharisees who are questioning him, Abraham saw his day, saw the day of Christ, and rejoiced. So he right. he knew he yeah. he looked he looked forward in some in some sense uh, to the coming of Christ, and so you know, in the same way, the throne of David. Yeah, is is representative of a greater throne, a throne not just That's over, right. not just over yep. Israel, but over all uh, the the church and even over the cosmos. And you, That's right. 
one of the things I really, um, I don't, I don't know that we have time to fully flesh it out. In fact, we, we don't, but one of the things that you do, I think very well in this book is you talk about how the old Testament is, uh, it contains shadows of the Ascension yeah. in the prophetic writings in yeah. the, the kingly experiences in the, 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 the priesthood. Yes. And, and so, um, you know, kind of like what you did with the Lion King and the presidency, <laughs> but the New Testament has all those foreshadowings, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the problem with the Ascension is that we only get two places where it narrates the Ascension, and it's actually quite bare historical reports. It doesn't give us a lot of theology within those narratives itself. It just kind of says Jesus floated up in the sky and the disciples were looking there kind of confused. And we're like, yeah. oh, we're kind of confused too. Why does this matter? But if you take your whole kind of Bible together, you've got all these stories. We already mentioned one, Moses ascending the mountain, the Levites ascending to the temple or the tabernacle into the presence of God. You've got Adam and Eve descending the mountain of God after they've ascended. You've got... Um, Elijah and Elisha, right? Um, Elijah ascending before the Father and then Elisha receiving the double portion of his spirit. You've got, we already mentioned Daniel 7, the Son of Man ascending on the clouds of heaven. You've got Psalm 2 with the King of Israel ascending Mount Zion. So if you just begin to open your eyes to that, what I like to call spatial movement of ascent descent in the Bible, you actually have a ton of theology built up through your whole Bible by the time you get to Acts at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts to understand that the ascension is actually a really big deal and that they yeah. understood it was going to be a big deal. And there's all these shadow stories of what the ascension means. I like to tell people, you know, we don't, in the New Testament, we don't get the language of what happened, what the father said to the son when he ascended in the New Testament, but we actually get in the Old Testament. Like, uh, well done, my, my son, right? Uh, you are my son. Uh, yeah. Today I've become your father. Like language yeah. like that, that is actually spoken to the son as he ascends to the father. So we actually get, um, I mean, what is this? It's like a pre- visual peek at what's happening in the old testament before yeah. it even happens yeah as these prophecies and promises are coming through to the old testament kings and then finally we see it fulfilled in jesus christ so the big point here is fill out your theology of the ascension with these old testament narratives to really understand what's happening okay the the biggest um the biggest shock to me in your book was on page 88. Okay. I want to, I want to preface this because I think this is just absolutely brilliant. In Daniel, uh, what is it? Daniel seven, where it says Daniel saw in his night visions, he saw the ancient of days, which mm. man, I wish we could have time to unpack that because John says no one has ever seen the father, but that sure sounds like the father, but okay. You've got, you've got the ancient, ancient of days. He's, he's seated on the throne. Yeah. And then you've got, one like a son of man, yeah, a human. In other words, a human, and he comes in in the clouds, and he takes his seat next to the ancient of days. Yeah. Okay. Now, what you do is you make the connection to the um, the ascension as recorded in Acts. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you mentioned Mark 14, 62. I think you probably do. Mm-hmm. But uh, where it says, uh, where Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. Yep. And I want to I want to throw one more piece into the mix here too. The oh. Greek word for coming 
you know, we all we always hear that and we think, well, yeah, you'll see Jesus return. I mean, the angels do say he will come in the same way that he yeah. ascended, right? So yep. he's going to come in the clouds. But that word for coming in the clouds is erkomai, which means mm -hmm. both coming and going. So yeah. Jesus could just as one. well been saying, yeah. you will see the son of man going in the clouds. Right, 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 right. right. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So what you point, and this is now with all that having been said, on page 88, you say this from, okay, here, while Luke only provides an earthly perspective, the heavenly viewpoint shows how King Jesus was installed as the king in the midst of the broken and chaotic kingdoms of the earth. And here's the, the statement that I love. From da from Daniel's perspective, it was not a departure story, but an arrival story. Yeah. So here's what this. Tell me if I am I if I'm understanding your point here correctly. Um, in Acts, the apostles and the eyewitnesses saw Jesus going in the clouds. Mm -hmm. That was the earthly perspective of what Daniel saw when yep. he saw the Son of Man coming in the clouds yep. into the throne room, and yep. it's as if the the clouds are that they're like a barrier, uh, uh, a cosmic heavenly barrier between yeah. heaven and earth. A Godmobile. A Godmobile. Well, that's your words. Uh, <laughs> and, and he's going and he is, from the heavenly perspective, he's coming in those very same clouds to yeah. take his throne. Yes. Is yeah. that is that what's going on there? Exactly. I think you're getting a heavenly view and an earthly view. Daniel 7 is the heavenly Incredible. view. And Acts 1 is the earthly view. And so what's great about Daniel 7 is notice in 14, it says, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And then this is key for Acts. This is key for Matthew 28. This is key for our mission to the nations, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. The yes. ascension is the foundation of mission. Yes. I don't know how else to say it. Ooh. It's it's the foundation of us going to the nations because he is the king of all the universe. Therefore, we call all the universe to come and worship him. We call all peoples. He's the king of all peoples. He was declared as the king of the Jews on the cross. He's yeah. There's something different now. Yeah. He's the Lord of heaven and earth now yeah. as he ascends to the Father. So all dominions, all kingdoms, and every dominion is going to pass away, but his kingdom will never pass away. That's what Daniel 7.14 says. And so, yeah, you get this. Um, I mean, we could get more into the details. Is it coming? Is it going? That I think it's both. It just depends yeah. on what perspective you're yeah, looking at right. it from. He's coming if you're sitting in the heavens, and he's going if you're sitting on the earth. And guess what? He's going to come again with the clouds of heaven the way that he left. And so I think the Bible is using this imagery in this deep and rich way to get us to reflect. I mean, this is where uh, I, I taught with the Bible Project guys, and they talk about the Bible as Jewish meditation literature. We're supposed to like chew on this stuff and meditate on it. And I think there's a deeper meaning to that Erkamai coming and going. And they use that specifically to say it is a coming and going story. And That's what true. I love to say about its connection with Acts is that there's, an, there's a pre-journey before the journey of the apostles. And what is that journey? That's the journey of Christ to the heavens. That's the foundation of the journey to the ends of the earth. And so we have to actually get that kind of spatial realignment of the whole universe of Christ must journey first before they go out and journey to the ends of the earth. There's a cruciform significance to this. Christ goes up. Yep. He goes, well, he, I mean, um, I, 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 Philippians like, 2. Go, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, there's a up and down, right? He goes down. Yes, yes, humiliation. Yes, that's he right. goes up, exaltation. Yes, yes, and then he tells his people, "What do you need to do? You need to go down so that you might right. be exalted too." Yeah, <laughs> I don't know right. if that's what you were that's getting right. at. Well, but you must was, suffer so that yes. you may be exalted. 
You must make yourself low. You must, and this is what the apostles do. What do they do? Do they meet great success? Well, they meet some success. People are saved. People are baptized. And and then they get thrown. Paul Paul calls them the scum of the earth. That's right. So they're not exactly welcomed like kings everywhere. They're they're thrown into prison. They're killed. Uh, They're chased out of town. Paul's left in prison at the end of the book. They must go low and humble themselves so that they might be exalted just like Christ himself. Yeah. Well, the, the point I was I was going towards is I believe, uh, no, I, maybe maybe you disagree with this, but I believe when Jesus died, he did descend to Sheol, not for punishment or, or suffering, but actually, well, again, I'm laying some of my own uh, cards on the table here, but I, I believe- I agree with you. Keep going. Preach okay. It. So so he he uh, liberated the Old Testament saints, or the, everybody that we read about in Hebrews 11, who had be- believed, but couldn't receive it yet because Christ hadn't died yet, but he yeah. liberated them, brought them up to heaven. So he literally, um, oh, and by the way, while he was down there, he also preached to those sons of God that left their place of authority yeah. and said, nice try. You tried to foil my plot, but um, <laughs> but look, I'm the Messiah. I'm preaching yeah. to you. Uh, yeah. uh, I am king. I win. You lose. Now I'm going to take what's mine. And he takes the Old Testament saints. He brings them up to heaven and he literally, he descends, he ascends. And then after that, preliminary journey that he takes now, the apostles and, um, oh, and by the way, while he does that, he also gives gifts to men, um, according to Paul. Yep. And, and now he, uh, he gives gifts to his church. And now because Jesus has gone down and back up, now the church goes left, right, east, west, north, and south, and they go out into the world. So there's that cruciform motion. Christ goes down and up. We go left and right. So to speak. I hadn't, I hadn't put that together. Yeah. Yeah, So, 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 and that's, and that's, uh, you know, what does Jesus say? If I'm, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And, mm-hmm. um, and how was he lifted up? He was lifted up on a cross. So I don't want to read too much into the symbolism here, but it's it's pretty significant. Jesus was killed on a cross, um, which was sort of a big signpost saying, "Hey, this is this is uh, how my kingdom's going to spread. This is how I'm going to have dominion over the world." That's right. I, I have yeah. dominion, but that dominion is also going to be realized in real time. That's right. And that you're just repeating what Ephesians four again is saying that yeah. he sent us sent motion is key for Christ conquering, as you mentioned, the spiritual powers. Yeah. So yeah, I'm 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 totally on board. I still need to think about I go back and forth on the Old Testament saints and the release. That's the only detail that I'm okay. like, that's oh, fair. Okay, what, that's fair. What happened there? But yeah, I, I've gone honestly, I've pitched back and forth between that. Some years I'm like, yeah, he definitely released the Old Testament saints. And other years I'm like, nah, they're already in the heavens and sure. they're waiting. I I just it's so hard to know exactly with that. But I definitely agree with like first Peter three, he went down to Sheol to uh, the realm of the dead and preach victory over those there. Now, were the Old Testament saints there? Yeah, maybe. Uh, it's hard for it's hard to say. That that's a tough one, but uh, I definitely respect that opinion. Yeah, sure, sure. And and I know that there's there's many brilliant scholars who disagree with that view. I'm more than happy to um, you know hold off on that debate till we get to heaven. And, and I'm just glad that you believe in a descent to the dead. That's the first step. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, I I think. I think that's important. I think the yeah. victory of Jesus is we well anyway, look, it's not my book. I want to let you talk here. So, let's uh <laughs> let's um uh, can we can we do this because well, go ahead. Me and Matt Emerson, do you know Matt Emerson? Do you know no. that name? He no, wrote know. a book on the descent to the dead. We we plan at some point on doing a b- biblical theology of ascent and descent, Ooh. which is combining these two things across the whole canon. So, he's worked a lot on the descent of Christ. And I've worked a lot on the ascent. I said, "Why don't we come together and do this yeah. thing together?" <laughs> That's good. Yeah, That's good. Is that good? Will that be through Lexum or who will that be through? 
Uh, we'd like to do, I, we don't know yet. We haven't even started, but maybe okay. um, the NSBT series, the biblical theology one. Okay. I was going to say, if you do it through Lexham, um, then uh, um, my boy Lindsay might send it to me for free. So uh, <laughs> there's a little pitch to do it for Lexham, right? Th that's right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So, so here's what, here's what I'd like us to do because I mean, we could go, oh, before we go to the final piece here, I, one thing, I, if you could just tell me your opinion on this. When when Daniel sees the coronation and the the installation of the Son of Man, yeah, how does that work temporally? Is he seeing a vision of something that is going to happen, or is he somehow transcending time and actually watching it take place? Does that question make sense? It does make sense. I don't know if I've ever considered which one that is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Um, is this bad to say I'm it doesn't it doesn't matter to me either way. Sure. I don't think it 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 matters. I have I think I've usually thought of that he's seen something that hasn't happened yet. That's ha same here. However, you know, with God, God is um beyond time and and he is above time. And so if if Daniel ends up going to the heavens and seeing something that happens out of order of time or sees it in one big swoop of thing, that wouldn't bother me either. So neither of those categories seems to break any of my theological systems. Sure. <laughs> I don't know if I have a strong opinion about it. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's, that's fair enough. So, all right. Um, can we talk about just in terms of application? So one of the things we like to do on this show is we like, we put a strong emphasis on the, the biblical worldview and, um, uh, and, and what, and what the significance is in terms of um, how do we understand our Bibles better? And how do we understand our world better? How do we how do we form our Christian worldview? Yeah. But but we also like to talk about why does this matter? Uh -huh. As I'm now, okay, maybe it doesn't matter while I'm doing my laundry or um or you know playing in the backyard with my kids. But in terms of practical application, rubber meets the road. Where is the practical application of this doctrine so that our folks who are listening later on on the podcast, watching live right now on Facebook or YouTube, can walk away from this and say, okay, later on this day or maybe later this week, here's where I'm going to apply what I just learned about the ascension. Yeah. Is is there a practical application to this? I'm Certainly. assuming you're going to say yes. What is that? <laughs> I don't write books without practical applications. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think you could look almost at the subtitle of each of my chapters on prophet, priest, and king. He's building his church, he's interceding for people, and he's reigning over all. So let's just tie it to what's going on right now. Again, we're about to have an election in November, and we'll see what happens. But Are you know we? What? Are we really? <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, but what we know is that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that Amen. we ultimately worship him, and that no one can destroy that kingdom. We stand on a kingdom that is unshaken, that will never be shaken. All these kingdoms of the earth will go down at some point, but his kingdom will last forever. So in one way, we can care, but in another way, we can be free and know that we serve the ultimate, true, good, wise shepherd king. And that should give us a lot of hope in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of a world that honestly is putting a lot of hope in political systems right now, and they're becoming identity markers for people. And as Christians, we should be able to transcend that and say, we don't worship any of these people here on the earth. We can vote the way that our conscience leads, but at the same time, we can say we follow a king who has already been installed as heaven. We didn't vote. Guess what? 
He right. was installed and he's the best king that can ever come. We're, we're a little scared of kingship in America, but monarchy from God is good. And so we can, we, we can have hope. And then in terms of intercession, if you, as we sin, as we stumble, as we fall, as we don't know what to pray, remember Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's interceding for us. And not only that, according to Ephesians and Colossians, we are seated there with him. So wow. that's, an, that's encouragement that you have the Son of God advocating for you. And according to Hebrews, he's not ashamed of you. Amen. He's not embarrassed of you. And so how much more does that make us want to go before him and present our request to him and say, we know that they will reach the Father because they come through the Son? That's hugely encouraging. And then in terms of prophet building his church, we can go out with confidence and share the message of Jesus because we know that his spirit continues to work. The spirit did not stop working after Pentecost. We still live in the days of the spirit. And so even though it maybe seems like nobody in your neighborhood is interested, maybe no one in your town's interested, guess what? The spirit is still at work. God is still building his church and he will continue to do so. So, have confidence, go out and share about our reigning king. So I think this is, I mean, this is the Christian story. This is massively encouraging and massively, it, it, or it gives us much hope in the midst of chaos. Man, that's that's fantastic. Uh, and a much needed, uh, very pastoral word at, at, at this current time. And when I said, are we going to have an election? I, I didn't mean that the election was going to get suspended, but rather uh, I was- I was uh, <laughs> Anything sorry. could happen these days. That's that, what that, Well, that, that is true. Um, but no, just uh, that's, man, that seems like that's, that's all anyone's talking about, the election or yeah. uh, or the the turmoil, okay. political turmoil yeah. and, and everyone's response to COVID and, and the uh, yeah. riots and all protests. Things. It's yeah, all true. political. Christians reigns oh, over all of it. That's right. That's right, man. Yeah, I've been I've been reading Psalm two a lot lately, mm -hmm. and so I would commend that to our listeners. Um, speaking of our listeners, I want to just uh, put a couple of things up here. Um, Nick Smeckler says, "Four Kids Club." Shout out. Do you do you know him? Do you know what that know. is? I don't know what that is. I don't know Four Nick Smeckler. Okay. I don't know who that, I don't know what that means. He says four kids club shout out. And then he said, Gnosticism dead. So, okay. This is now this is from earlier on in the podcast. So something we said prompted Nick Smeckler to say Gnosticism dead. So there you go. Um, uh, Donna Flentke, thank you for watching. She by far wins the competition for most comments. I think she posted like like uh, at least a baker's dozen of comments there. Once we got into the seven heavens, she got really excited. That's a, yeah. Well, that's right. Well, she's I you know she said this is her area of study. I know she's very <laughs> she's very passionate about about this sort of thing, and I know that many of our listeners are as well. Especially when we get into some of these areas of theology and the Christian worldview that don't get a lot of time from the pulpit and yet yeah. can help us form a more robust, fully orbed biblical yeah. worldview. Because exactly. scripture does talk about these things. Yep. And um, and if we're going to believe the gospel and we're going to believe God's word, we need to believe what the Bible actually says about where Jesus is, what he's doing, and why it right. all matters. And it makes certain texts click into place and be like, okay, now that makes sense in terms of what they're doing. So that, it helps. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Dr. Schreiner, where can people um, – by the way, there's another theologian named Schreiner. Yeah, I'm kind of related to him. Are you? Yeah. Second uh, son. Second son, tell tell us about your dad just just real quick. It is is he is he the reason why you got into um, 
theology yeah, and, and, and I think in thing? many ways, yeah. So he's a professor of New Testament, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's been teaching Greek and New Testament for many years now. Um, and so I didn't think I was going to go towards studies, but honestly, as the Lord started to recapture my heart, I went towards pastoral ministry and then um, just started asking a lot of questions about the text. And thankfully, he was only a phone call away when I had those questions. And so <laughs> that's awesome. been a huge help. And then, uh, yeah, so he really stoked that fire in terms of learning and digging into the scriptures and the original languages. And that just became a love of mine. So he's a great awesome. example. He not he doesn't just write books, but he uh, loves God's people and loves Jesus Christ. So Praise praise the Lord. That's great. So Tom Schreiner is uh, uh, Patrick Schreiner's father. Um, a couple of uh, brilliant theological minds in that family. And um, you know what? We did get one more question coming in. Are you okay? Do you have time? Can you answer one more question? Yeah, that's fine. Yep. Okay. So this is from Nate Werner. He's watching on YouTube. And here's what he says. This sounds very exciting, but almost a little too good to be true. How do you avoid reading a false sense of optimism into the text instead of a real optimism out of it? Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you look at a book like First Peter, he combines amazing optimism, optimism with also realistic expectations. So those in Asia Minor, he calls them elect. They have an inheritance that is waiting for them. They're being guarded for that inheritance. That inheritance is not going away. It's being kept for them in heaven, but at the same time, they're exiles and they're going to suffer here upon the earth. And so while there's a hope that we wait for, while there's an inheritance that is coming to us and that we have these privileges as God's people, at the same time, he says, you're going to live in the midst of trials and suffering, and that's going to be the reality. So that's that's the challenge of being a Christian. We are amazingly optimistic and we are also realistic about what that will mean here upon the earth, which is, I think, the pattern of Jesus. Jesus understood that he was going to be exalted for what he did, but he also understood that he was going to suffer on the earth for what he was going to do. That should be our expectation as Christ followers. That's good. That's good. And and yet we can keep that optimism of Romans 8, 28 through That's 39. Right. We don't want to lose that. Yeah. yeah. Man. Yeah. Very good. Um, okay. Tell, tell us where can we find your book and then what other projects are you currently working on right now? Yeah. I mean, find the book on Amazon, Lexham Press. I think Lexham might have a $5 discount right now. So if you want to go over to their, web, their website, it's a little bit cheaper. Okay. Um, and then I'm working on Acts commentary. I'm working on a whole New Testament overview with visual literary outlines, which is a really fun project. So it's going to be for pastors and students of the Bible or just uh, people in the church who want to look at kind of the literary structure of a book from a visual standpoint. We're trying to hit those visual learners um, and kind of see the flow of a book and the argument of every New Testament book. And so I'm working with the artist for that one. That's with Moody Press, and that should come out uh by next summer i'm guessing maybe before that so uh look out for those two i have a few other projects i'm working on but acts and uh the overview of the new testament is what i'm working on right now very cool um and uh Let's see. Uh, I know you're on social media. Uh, you and I are actually Facebook friends. Um, I'm, I'm going to tag you in this post after we're done here. But um, that's good. You're also now that I know you're down there at Midwestern. Um, next time I'm I'm in town, which I'm planning a trip down to Kansas City at some point in the near future. Nice. Our our um our, we're uh, the Think Institute is under the umbrella of Crew, which um, Crew's got many different ministries, and one of those ministries is church movements. And um, so I'm going to go ahead and put uh, put a link up here for folks who want to learn more about that. Uh, do I have a link? No, I can't find it. That's okay. Um, the uh, 
the Think Institute is a crew. Anyway, Crew Church Movements is based out of Kansas City. And so I'm going to oh, take a, nice. a, a trip down there at some point. You and, should come uh, back, back and see this uh, library back here. You know, I, I want to, man. I've only seen it virtually. I'd, I'd love to come <laughs> to come check it out and uh, and I'll get you a coffee and, and we can. Yeah, let's do it. Talk we can a little see bit more. each other in person. In yeah, Bobby. which in this day and age is a strange, it almost feels like a strange prospect. So that's right. That's right. I like it. All right, great. Well, uh, Dr. Patrick Schreiner, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real, real pleasure. And um, uh, so, listen, everyone, you heard his, uh, you heard where you can get the book. Go out and get this book, The Ascension of Christ: Recovering a Neglected Doctrine. It's it's an excellent book, and um, you will be blessed by it. Buy two copies of it. Get one for your friend. And if you do buy it on Amazon, go ahead and leave it a rating as well. Um, so that folks who are checking out the book can see how good it is, how much it's blessed you, and um, and uh, you know it'll help them build their biblical worldview and and uh, share the gospel with others. So um, connect with the Think Institute simply by going to thethink.institute, or you can shoot me an email at thethink.institute at gmail.com. Find out more about partnering with the Think Institute and the Seta Case family simply by going to give dot crew cru.org slash one zero one eight eight four one that's my family's giving page there on uh, on the the crew website and uh, we we rely on the support of like-minded individuals and churches like yourself so thank you for tuning in and follow us on all the social media we always appreciate well let me say this Oftentimes, we appreciate the interaction that we get on social media. Not always, but uh, it's always good to interact with listeners and viewers, and uh, that helps us learn as well. We hope this has been a blessing to you, and this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the way of your spiritual journey, and that's all we have for you today. So until next time, I hope it made you think.